0: the service, and I didn't realize you'd be part of blessing me so much, Uh, and thank you for that really meaningful uh, time of worship, uh, and worship in the songs that you sang, and uh, then one line just stood out for me, the thrill of hope, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And into a world of sorrow and pain and how extraordinary was the trauma of God's people around the time of the coming of Jesus. And into that world of seeming despair is born this thrill of hope. So this morning I want to uh, take us to the story of the wise men. Or the Magi. And uh, we're doing something across at Explore, which is a series of looking at various signs given around uh, the Christmas story and season and narrative. And we see that as we follow the signs, ultimately we're finding God, following the signs and finding God. So it's wonderful to be able to join you at Classic Anticipating this season, in which people are open as n- at no other time in the year <clears throat> to hearing about Jesus. I mean, I find it extraordinary. Even even the 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 song, written by people who don't know Jesus, and yet they wrestling with and. Open to and allowing something of this good news. You know, the angels said to the shepherds, this is going to be good news of great joy for all people. And then he pointed them to another sign, you're going to find a baby in cloths. A thrill of hope and there's a baby in cloths. But people are open And it's such a joy, such a privilege for us to explore and test and see just how much we can carry good news of great joy to all people as we go about our time. We've got guests and family members traveling, and certainly not everyone around our Christmas table will know and love the Lord. Yet they're willing to gather around that table. How can we bring good news Great joy to all people. It's such a privilege. But Christmas is not just a time for others. I believe in God's purpose it's a time for us and and certainly the way our country uh, is operating. It's more than a time to just take a break and explore. Uh, Last week I think we had 12 families already on holiday. (laughs) People are gapping it. But it's more than a break. I think God invites us in seasons like this into a reset. You know, our culture pressures us to work, 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 holiday, work, 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 holiday. And you somehow supposed to cope. Whereas when we begin to reset with God, we find that God starts with rest and then work. And rest and then work. And then by the time you get to Sabbath, it's rest, 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 and then work. And now we get to some of these great festivals, and it's opportunity for a reset. So as we come to this, we want to look at science. Now, science don't always guarantee the outcome that people will see them, people will follow them, people will respond to them. I'm a cyclist, and... Uh, and uh, we're rather notorious around Cape Town for um, not noticing traffic lights. And so I don't know if this makes any sense to you. Um, but um, this poor man couldn't get into his bank account because he needed to pass a capture test. Um, because he couldn't see the signs. The presence of the sign doesn't guarantee the response of the heart. We can ignore signs. We can pretend they aren't there. We can, we can let the meaning or the significance pass us by. Today we don't want to do that. So come with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and we begin at verse 1. Um, Jesus Born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod. And after his birth, Magi came from the east uh, from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, "Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw its star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So they were in the east. they realized that there's a sign in the heavens pointing to the arrival of the king of the Jews, and they assume, without then following the star carefully, that they need to go to Jerusalem, because where else would a king of the Jews be born? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ or where the Messiah, the anointed king, was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who would shepherd my people Israel. until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down. They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures... And they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there. Until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the middle of the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled yet another sign. (laughs) What the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt... I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. So I know our nativity scene has shepherds and angels and Magi, but It's almost a two-year period that has elapsed. They traveled far to be there. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Imagine for a moment you were told to write the story of the creator God coming to earth to save the world from suffering, evil, and brokenness. And in your story, you would get to choose when and where and how he would arrive, you could choose the backstory, you could choose you could choose who would be involved, who would be the lead characters, how they would react, what their motives would be. In other words, imagine eight billion people in the world got to invent Christmas. God coming. I don't think anyone would have got it. As it is. I mean, who of us would have conceived of God entering the world, yes, clothed in majesty, but now dressed in strips of cloth, appropriate, of course, to a newborn baby of that time? Not in a palace, but in a stable, in an animal feeding trough. And would we, would we think of these signs? Signs in the heaven above? A star that leads to the exact location? Would we include the magi? Would we include the horror of the innocent suffering, the murder of the baby boys of Bethlehem? Could we imagine that God awakens Faith and tests faith through the mystery of signs. You know, in our reading, there are several signs that point to the coming of God's Messiah. I mean, there's the star that announces his birth. And the same star that guides the wise men to his exact location. They'd made an assumption. The assumption was wrong. The star did not leave them until they literally got to where the baby lay in his mother's arms. There were two prophecies that point to Bethlehem. The place of God's, the origin of God's shepherd ruler And the same place that suffers the tragedy inflicted on her baby boys. If you carry on reading in the chapter, you find that, um, well, the reading also points to the sign that God's son will come from Egypt. And, of course, there's this dual application between Israel and her exodus under Moses and, of course, Jesus himself. So the signs aren't always obvious. And then you read a little bit further and Joseph realizes he cannot return to to, uh, Judea and to Bethlehem. And so he goes to live in Nazareth. And the chapter ends that the prophets knew he'd be a Nazarene, that in Galilee a light would dawn. Now, Even if we just look at these signs, the first four of those, the star that announces his birth and then guides to them, the place of origin is Bethlehem and the same place is tragedy for these baby boys. Three groups of people gather in the same place to consider these signs. So what we find is the wise men. They go to Herod, they go to Jerusalem, there's Herod himself, and then there's the priests and the teachers of Scripture. And they're going to consider the same sign given, and God gives the sign because of love. He wants people to know him. He wants people to be able to say, this is the true God. This this isn't simply a human invention. This is verified, as it were. This is pointing, yet it takes faith and tests faith. You see, the signs themselves do not guarantee the correct response. We'll see that from these three groups who interrogate the same sign and have dramatically different reactions to it. The signs, rather are there to evoke our thought, our reflection, and ultimately our obedience and our worship. We have no guarantee of the correct response simply because we see a sign or even know there is one right there. So maybe this is a An important footnote to go before we even start. Be careful of asking for a sign. If you do not intend to begin the journey of surrendering your life to the God who has come. Be careful of saying, I need the evidence, I need the proof. There are many, many evidences of God's grace, his power, his love. How much do we need before we will bow our lives and give him our treasures? So let's look at these three. The first we find are the wise men. They were astrologers who believed that the stars contained and predicted your destiny. They were almost certainly Gentiles and um, And and yes, there's a bit of a theory that they might have been from Babylon or Chaldean origin and understood something of Daniel's prophecies. That's pure conjecture. The text doesn't give us that. So you can't really build too much on that. But there's an incredible puzzle here. There's mystery. The Bible explicitly says that you can't read your future in the stars, And yet God communicates with these kings or magi in a way that they understood. It's fascinating even in our day as we look at missiologists and as they study about how to reach different cultures who've got no background of faith or or, or biblical story, how again and again, inside that culture, there is something that God has placed that gives them a resonance to the person and story of Jesus Christ when it is finally shared. And so God communicates with these men in a way that they understood, but more mystery Can we even work out which star it was? Certainly not in any way that we could prove, partly because the dating of Jesus' birth is rather uncertain. A much more recent theory is, so you know, it used to be on 0 BC, the year of our Lord. Then we learned from the scholars, no, we think it's 4 BC. And so everyone sort of like thought it was 4 BC. The latest theory actually is now that we're talking about 6 BC. Now, which star is where? I don't know. How many wise men were there? We actually don't know. We guess three because of the number of gifts. And sometimes they've even been given names and upgraded uh, in status to kings. Maybe we should focus more on what we do know. They were clearly alert to the workings of God and they were willing to explore. They were willing to go on a long journey, travel far, and they were willing to keep looking, and they did not settle for academic answers. You know, when they got to Jerusalem and they, said, and they heard, well, it's Bethlehem, they didn't go, oh, great. Obviously, Bethlehem. How did we miss that? <laughs> now we know the answer. Their sense of joy, and literally the text says they were overjoyed when once again after their mistaken assumption that you simply, you know, it's it's there, it's over Israel, let's go to Jerusalem. And once they begin the journey again, it's as if the star literally takes them, and it's not terribly far from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Most of the lambs that would have been slaughtered in Jerusalem for the temple were raised in the fields of Bethlehem. And the star was so specific as to lead them to the very house. They keep seeking until they find him and can give him the treasures of their lives. Then they open their treasures. It's interesting that their journey was a combination of faith in the signs and big questions to know more. You know, the signs God gives us doesn't, will, will never answer all your questions completely. Rather, they are pointers. Go here. Seek here. But you know, if you follow the signs and find God, you still won't have all the answers. You still cannot solve all the world's problems. You still cannot explain why there's so much pain and evil and suffering. They were on the journey, and they were following the signs, and they were finding God. And they still were walking with their questions, and God honored them for it. And the reality is, in our day, God gives us signs every day. You know, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that even the world around you, literally creation itself, is evidence, sign of of a creator God and his incredible power and wisdom and intelligence. And if you've got a God who's so powerful and profoundly smart and wise, would you not want to know him? And so the question to us today is, will we journey until we find him? Will we follow the signs? And some of these signs are literally contained in this book. If, you, if you're wanting evidence, some of the strongest evidence as to the identity of Jesus is the fact that literally over hundreds of years, the details of his life are prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And then are fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled. If you want a miracle, hold a Bible. It contains so many signs if you're willing to look. So they seek to find the king and worship. So that was the wise men. Then we come to Herod who's the villain of the piece who's interested only in himself and he's living in such deep insecurity that he attacks the most vulnerable and innocent if we go to secular history we we discover that uh, the authors of his time reveal Herod as this murderously insecure man He killed two of his brothers-in-law. He had Mariamne, one of his own wives, executed. He killed two of his own sons because they were aspiring to the crown. As he died, he decreed that multiple random citizens be arrested and executed so that nationally there would be an atmosphere of grief and loss because he was worried people would not be sad at his passing. As we come into our story for the day, his only interest in the signs was that he might thwart the purposes of God by murdering the newborn king. Now, there are many things. Well, let me take a detour for a moment. For many years now, South Africa has used the first 16 days of December to encourage, so those have just just finished yesterday, to encourage activism against violence towards women and children. And sadly, as we continue our journey into our democratic dispensation and our new constitution, the statistics of this evil of violence against women and children continues to worsen and not improve. So every year, it's almost like this replay in the media. And yet, less and less. And so there's still the marches. There's still the protests. There's still the cries of grief and sorrow and outrage. And yet, the violence seems more and more endemic. Now, many things can be rightfully said about that, including that this is an abuse of power. But I don't think that that abuse of the innocent and the vulnerable and the powerless is going to change until we understand something from Scripture itself. That whenever you roll over the rock of abuse or the rock of violence, the scorpion underneath is not power but fear. The thing that drove Herod... Was not his power. Although that was profound, he was reinforced by the might of Rome. The thing that drove Herod to such darkness was his fear. You see, it's fear that feeds the abuse of power, because fear is a powerful form of negative faith. Fear is not agnostic in the sense that it believes nothing fear is terrified of events it cannot control and so fear takes every action to try and anticipate things that I can't control. And I must define the power to control every variable in my life, even if the innocent suffer. I mean, all the babies, by the one that he wanted, are massacred in Bethlehem. And a voice is heard crying in Ramah. Not because of one man's power, but because of one man's fear. When people are abusing others, we think the solution is to take away their power. What we need to understand is we need to lead them to the faith that takes away their fear. It's fear that it feeds this abuse of power, this abuse of the innocent, the abuse of women and children, and in this case, the massacre of the innocent. And so maybe here's a question. In this extraordinary Christmas narrative that we often have romanticized, yes, unimaginable pain. How would things change if we resisted? The power of fear. What would it look like for me to begin to live in meaningful faith? Fears literally believing the wrong things about what makes this world tick. And folks, this is not just 2,000 years ago. You open your phone, you're being bombarded by what? Conspiracy theories that want to awaken the worst instincts in us. The Apostle Paul wrote, perfect love, sorry, Apostle John, drives out fear. And so love incarnate, love in a body, enters the world. And the enemy himself is terrified. So that's the villain of the peace. But there is another group. We find the priests and the teachers of the law. Imagine their day. There is this incredible news. And it's spread all around Jerusalem. I mean, the wise men have innocently come into Jerusalem, whether they first went to the palace or not. And they're asking the question, where is he? The one who's been born, king of the Jews. And this causes no small uproar in the city. And so the teachers and the priests are summoned to the palace. They told about this sign, this star in the skies, and, and that these Gentile sages believe that the Jewish Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed king, has finally come. And spectacularly, when asked where would He be born, they know the right answer. In Bethlehem, he has the text. They know the right answer, but they don't go. They don't go. They don't see. They don't get to Bethlehem. They don't hear the story of Mary and Joseph. They don't hear what the angels and the other people around would have spoken of. I mean, the shepherds would tell them if they did a little bit of investigating. If they, if they bothered to assemble Evidence. They don't encounter the very one they'd been praying for and teaching about all these years. Were they just indifferent? This is very unlikely. We know from what is called intertestamental literature and the rabbinic writings of the period, etc., that Judea, Galilee, the whole of Palestine of that time was on absolute tenterhooks, counting down the empires prophesied by Daniel. And expectation is we are now with the the you know the, the empire of metal, not gold, but just now iron with the clay feet, and there is a rock not formed by human hands, that is about to come and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. This expectation was not in a little corner amongst a few Jews or those down at the Dead Sea. This expectation was rampant across the people. Jesus played it down again and again because he knew people would interpret it militarily. This was at fever pitch. Why did they not go The New Testament offers us evidence that it's far more likely that they took offense at the sign and those whom God used to identify it. You know, when the Apostle Paul was preaching, he was talking about Jesus and his death and resurrection and how he would be the king, people were listening. And then he tells, in one of his trials, his trials how that same Jesus said to him, now preach this to the Gentiles. Take this to the nations. At that moment, they all began screaming, this cannot be our Messiah. We will not share him. He is for us and us alone. Rid the earth of him. And they wanted to murder Paul at his trial. It's far more likely... That these scribes, teachers of the law, were going, what? God spoke to them? Gentiles? You've got to be kidding me. God's using the stars? I mean, we've got the texts. Why would God use the stars? Never, never mind that the texts actually said there would be signs in the heavens above. In each of these categories presents us with a question. And I think one of the questions from this group is, how many actions of God? How many renewals and revivals will I miss because I'm offended by the signs God used or the people that God was blessing through the moment? And the criteria you know, for dismissing it could be that they are the wrong race or the wrong language group or they have the wrong tattoos, God forbid, They have tattoos at all, you know, and and, and whatever our criteria is, they don't use the right songs. They don't use the right Bible translation. This cannot be God. I have to be so careful, and maybe you too. I, I, I have mercifully and wonderfully been trained to find lots of answers in the Bible. I need to be so careful that when someone begins to point to an evidence of grace in the world around me I don't give them the right answer from the Bible but I miss the opportunity to open up the treasures of my life to Jesus and bow down and worship where he is at work in the moment you see we must not be deceived by feelings of superiority that make us blind to the signs of God. They dismissed what God was doing. They dismissed the coming of God Himself. And so they missed what God was doing. And they missed the coming of God into the world. You know, every time God's word is preached, every time the gospel is shared, in that moment, another opportunity to follow the signs is offered, another opportunity to find God is given, another opportunity of good news, of great joy for all people is opened in that moment. Don't dismiss. Don't dismiss. Many of us may have come to place our faith in Jesus. And we do so with the conviction that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. But there may be someone here this morning. And you haven't reached the point of opening your treasures, surrendering your life, and bowing to this King. Can I plead with you? Don't let insecurity or fear or superiority or indifference blind you to the signs of God. This Christmas is yet another witness and evidence of the grace of God among us. Can I urge you, seek him till you find him. Follow that star. Follow that prophecy. Open the book. Read it. Test it. Examine the evidence for yourselves. Talk to someone you can trust. But talk to someone who's gone to the manger themselves, who's, who's bowed their life, who's opened their life. Talk to someone who's gone. Talk to one of the wise women or men. <laughs> you are not following what Herod fears, refusing to bow to the anger, the aggression, the violence that's all around us. And are letting the thrill of hope, even in the midst of a world of pain, point them to the presence and evidence of God. Will you follow the signs? Will you look at what God has done in Jesus? Will you examine the evidence? I want to invite you to place your faith and your trust in this king, this remarkable king, a baby who's born to be crucified but will rise indestructibly from the dead. The one who was part of all creation becomes the one who will bring recreation to the world. And in him we've placed our hope.